We come today because of Jesus. We come to worship him. So who is this Jesus? Why do we worship? Prophets foretold his coming centuries before it occurred. His birth was celebrated by angels, marveled at by shepherds, and honored by kings. At a young age, he astonished the well-educated scholars in the temple. He is the word made flesh. He healed sickness. He raised the dead. He multiplied food, walked on water, and calmed the storm. He taught with authority accompanied with simplicity so that all people could understand. He wept with sorrow at the death of a friend. He demonstrated humility in washing the feet of his own disciples. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In grief and sorrow, in rejection and in loss. The hands that blessed and healed were nailed to a cross. The beautiful feet that carried the message of God's love and mercy were pierced so that he could carry our sin. The heart that beat with more love than you and I could ever fathom was stilled as he gave up his life so that we might have life everlasting. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, he was not defeated by death. He rose from death to life just as he said he would. He is with us. He's interceding for us. He's preparing a place for us. He's still changing lives. He's touching hearts and he's healing hurts. And so we come today because of Jesus. We come to worship him. Recognizing that at the name of Jesus, Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow. And every mouth should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here at First Christian Church. If you're a guest with us today, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm glad you're with us today. We're going to spend some time looking at Scripture. We're going to look in the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn there, if you don't mind. It's about halfway through the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll notice there's one in the pew rack in front of you. You can see the page numbers for that, uh, where we're going to read on the screen behind me. If you don't own one, uh, take that Bible home as our gift to you, okay? You can see I'm holding this candle. It's, very, it's the candles that will, like the candles, will pass out on Christmas Eve, and they have a little uh, ring around them that helps people from getting the wax caught on their fingers and burning them. Helps us getting it, from getting it on the floor as well. Makes it easier for cleaning afterwards. And, you know, we'll, we'll sing a song on the, during the Christmas Eve services. It happens every year. We sing Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm. And, People often at the end of that song raise their candles high, and it's really cool to watch the whole room light up as these candles. We light the end of each pew and upstairs and downstairs, and the light just seems to you know, expand across the room. It's really this wonderful moment of peace and nostalgia and uh, this sense of us coming together. It's something that people look forward to each and every year. As a matter of fact, do you know that song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm? Would you sing it with me? 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to go over here to the piano and give us a note. I'm not going to play the piano and hold the, key, the candle at the same time. I'm not that talented by any means. I'm lucky to find the chord and do this, all right? For those who want to know, here's your note. Uh, or you could choose this note if you want to that note, but we'll choose that note, okay? <laughs> that was not nice, was it at all? Now, so you... Here we go, Silent Night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm. Stop right there. Stop right there. Some of you are in the moment already, right? Oh, it's going to be so sweet, and it's going to be so lovely, and you're going to go finish the song, finish the song. But I want to ask you this question. When we sang that just now, we sing it Christmas Eve, will all... Silent night, holy night, all is calm. It might be calm for the few minutes we're in the room, right? Because the truth be told, all of us know there's plenty of places that aren't calm outside the room. And even as I hold up this candle right now, you go, man, where's really the calmness in this world? Listen to the voice of a little 11-year-old singing. 11-year-old boy. kidding there's something in that just with deep within us that goes I want that I want that that understanding of all as well and that into uh, into the dark dawn's love light came crashing in and yet who are we kidding sometimes it's just nostalgia it's not reality isn't it you understand what I mean Think about that. Here we are sitting nice and calm, and yet, truth be told, we know that terror visited our nation this past week. California is struggling with the deaths of 14 people. Paris is struggling with the deaths of dozens. Perhaps you've seen the video, very similar to what we had here just a few minutes ago. As we sat, saw a young family light that candle, there's video now out on the web of a young family last weekend, last, Saturday, last Sunday, in a church in California, blue background. They're lighting a candle, a young man who was one of the victims a few days later in that mass shooting in California. And we go, man, where's the peace in that? Where's the peace in this world? I want, I want more than a, a moment of nostalgia. I want more than a moment just holding up a candle that looks good. Or nice song, I need peace deep within. I mean, if you think about it, our world is chaotic at the present time. Perhaps you've seen this recently. Time magazine, it's called World War ISIS. It's come about as a result of the shootings and the killings in Paris. It says, beating ISIS. The war against the terror group requires the kind of leadership that has gone missing. Whatever the world has been doing about ISIS is not working. Here's what ISIS has been doing. 
A Russian passenger jet was blown up over Egypt. Beirut's deadliest suicide bombing in 25 years. A Friday night in Paris was transformed into a bloodbath, the worst in France since World War II. Those attacked the work of a mere two weeks across three countries, and all claimed by the terrorist group killed nearly 400 people and wounded even more. The synchronized mayhem in the City of Light on November 13th shook the foundations of the European Union with its wide-open borders and paltry defense budgets. A gloating ISIS spokesman released a statement saying the attack was but the first of the storm. A former CIA chief proclaimed in a prediction, grimly, Americans, America's turn is coming. Man, was that ever right. A raid in a Paris suburb on November 18th left two people dead, including one woman who blew herself up. That raid may have narrowly prevented the next attack in, a, in France. We are all afraid, says Zimbabwe Hadri, a Paris res resident who witnessed the raid. We are all victims of these madmen. It was another turning point in ISIS history of maim and misery. Previous turns since the movement caught fire include the capture of the Iraqi city of Fallujah. You know, our country gave the lives of 100 people to capture that city in 2014. Now it's lost. There were the battles regarding the, the rich, oil-rich um, city of Mosul five months later, the proclamation of a restored caliphate and the escalating sadism of ISIS rule are all turning points, and they now obviously point in one direction, a downward spiral. Man, Wayne, way to start the service to sermon today, way to make us feel good. Well, I, wonder, I just want you to understand, we are a world that is in need of peace. We are in a world that needs just more than a candle held up. We need the peace of Christ in our lives and in this world. What we're doing today is that we're starting a series looking at the book of Isaiah. We're looking for Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And we're looking in the book of Isaiah at a time and a history that is like ours and unlike ours. In that, unlike ours, they didn't have cars or airplanes or anything like, like we have. But like ours, 2,700 years ago in the book of Isaiah was written, those people there were in desperate need of peace. If you know their history, you are aware 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the people of Israel, the people around Jerusalem were in great, in great trouble. The Assyrians were beginning to overtake the world. As a matter of fact, if you look at the map that's going to appear on the screen, you can see as they were coming from the north, where Iraq and Iran and some portions of Turkey are today, they were making their way south down towards Jerusalem. And they had all kinds of worries. And in the midst of the worries... There's this guy by the name of Isaiah come, who comes along and says, it's really bad. It's very bad out there, but I've got some good news for you. A Messiah is coming. A Savior is coming. And man, the people of Jerusalem, they latched onto that with every bit of, every bit of fiber that they could. Similar to us. Read with me Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. See if this doesn't describe both our time and our need. The people walking in darkness. Does that sound familiar? have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as wars rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Here's what's going to happen. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. How's that all going to come about? Because This way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And here's what you're going to call him. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you notice the titles that are given to Jesus there? They're saying a Savior is coming, a Messiah is coming. And in verse 6, we're told that he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, you have these various titles that Jesus is given. We're going to look at one in Isaiah 42 next week. Throughout the month of December, we're going to look at these titles uh, that are given to Jesus. The people of Jerusalem were waiting for his arrival. You may notice around the building, thanks to a wonderful crew of volunteers who were here last weekend, all the scrolls like the one behind me and on the trees out in the atrium and around the, around the building were these scrolls that have these titles that Jesus was given. I want to thank them for that and remind us everywhere we go in, this, in the lobby and around the building that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is available to us. Do you remember a little bit about this history, perhaps? Isaiah 9 was written all 700 years before the time of Jesus. 250 to 300 years after David, the most mighty king of Israel, had, became, had, had been on his throne. His family had ruled since that time, but along the way, the nation becomes splintered and fractured. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to Isaiah 9, you had a group of 10 tribes, all ruled by one of David's great-grandsons, or great-great-great-grandsons, depending on how you look at it, those ten tribes in the north were known as Israel. Two tribes in the south were known as Judah. And in 721, the Assyrians came in and literally wiped out the people in the north. The ten tribes disappeared. They disappeared from the biblical record. There is no record of them within secular history either. They are gone. The people who are Jewish today are the descendants of those in the south from Jeru who were around Jerusalem. Those ten tribes literally gone, taken away from the face of the earth. And the whole people who were living, the whole group of people who were left living in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside, they were living in fear. Jerusalem was living in fear and they worried about the future. They worried about what's it going to be like? Will there ever be peace for us? Is what they would think. Sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Just watching what took place in California, knowing that it was instigated and fomented to what's taking place in ISIS. It, mean, it means there are places where we look for peace. For example, we look for peace when it comes to just wor the world as a whole. We're looking for world peace. And we wonder, okay, just the same as the people of Jerusalem did 2,700 years ago, will there be peace in our world? Right now, man, it seems we're getting worse instead of better. I remember sitting at my desk Years ago, in, when I was pastoring in Tulsa, this is back in about 1985, 1986, somewhere in that era, um, I, got a, I got a letter from a guy who we'd worked with in Eastern Europe. And he was making a prediction in this letter, two predictions. First of all, he was predicting that Eastern European communism was going to disappear, that the Soviet Union, as we knew it in those days, was going to kind of splinter apart and it would be no more, and the Cold War was going to be won by the West. I'd worked in Eastern Europe. That seemed to be quite reasonable to me, having seen what was going on there. And so I agreed and thought, okay, fair enough. That's a, that's a good approach to what's taking place in Eastern Europe. It was a number of years later before it happened, but you could see it coming if you'd been there. But then his second prediction was that he said that as the Cold War ends, 
there's going to be a new threat that is even more difficult than the West facing the Eastern European communism. He said there's going to be a, a, there's going to be a world war, a world conflagration, some sort of struggle that's going to come as a result of the Western ideals versus Islamic ideals. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. And like you, I worry about my kids. I worry about grandkids and great-grandkids and children after that, and I wonder, should Jesus' second coming not come real soon, what kind of world will they inherit? You're going, Wayne, I came to church to get some good news. Yeah, I got some good news for you, but I got to tell you, where we are right now is a difficult place. I want to, if you will, give you where we are so you understand what the good news is all about. See, it's not only about the peace in the world that I'm concerned about, but it's also peace within my family and within my friends and, you know, who are we kidding? Some of you? Some of us? All of us? We have the crazy Aunt Mauds in our family, you know, the ones you go, oh, she's quite the character, or, you know, Uncle Joe snorts when he laughs out of his nose and it's really weird and you just go, ooh, and you go, okay, we've all got that, but then you got... You go, okay, that's one thing for the family to know all about that, but what about the dysfunction that's in my family that nobody knows about? I wish there was peace there. I wish I could get that fixed. I got world peace, I gotta worry about that, and I've got some situations in my own family. And then I go beyond my family, I've gotta know, can I get some personal peace? Can I get, can I, if you will, be comfortable in my own skin? Can I have some inner peace with God, if you will, so that as I have some peace within me, I can be at peace with others. I don't want to stay awake at night, stewing over the problems of the office, the neighborhood, or friends and acquaintances. Could I have some inner peace? I know it's got to start with me and God, and okay, I'm getting it right with me and God, but can I let that flow out to other people? I'd like to remind you, friends, that when we live in a time of lack of peace, that's not new to our culture or new to our time. Think of Adam and Eve. Do you know their story? Adam and Eve, made by God, created by God, put in the Garden of Eden in an idyllic place. They get to be there. And you know one of the cool things that happened to them? Each evening, Scripture tells us, God would come down and walk with them, it says, in the cool of the evening in the garden. Now, I'd really like to try that, wouldn't you? I'd like to try that. Adam and Eve are walking along, and God shows up. And uh, God says, how's it going today, guys? Oh, we're doing really good, God. We've, we've had some good luck with some planting some things, and it's growing. That's good to know. We'd like to know what to do with that tree over there and that tree over there. When should we prune them? And God, by the way, what's with that animal over there? Could you not make up your mind? It's striped in different colors. doesn't make sense at all. White, brown, it is brown. Zebras are brown. You know, white, brown, dark brown, white, brown, dark brown. And um, <laughs> they say, God, what happened there? He says, I don't know. It just kind of got out of hand. I just got really creative. And, and, and they said, what should we call it? And God says, I don't know, maybe zebra. Let's call it zebra. Or in Australian, call it zebra. Okay, but nonetheless. Okay, so, so some of you didn't know that came along. That's just for free, all right? But nonetheless. <laughs> I don't know that that happened. I'm pretty sure it didn't happen quite like that. But what I want you to remember is that they lived in this idyllic moment, in this idyllic time. And yet when they chose to sin, they went from being walking with God in the cool of every day to shame, to sin, to, um, well, murder within one generation. One of their sons murdered the other. Huh. 
In the sludge and slough of no peace, Isaiah then comes along and says, there's a prince of peace coming. And you know how he puts it? Familiar passage of scripture. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, for the people of Jerusalem 2,700 years ago, they were waiting for the Prince of Peace. They were waiting for Jesus to come as the Messiah. For them, he was a future hope. For us, Jesus' arrival is a past, a past event that already has taken place, and we get to have that personal peace. We get peace from God, and at, from that, then we get to mature and grow in Him and gain peace in our own skin, with ourselves, if you will, and with God, and from that, then we gain peace with others. We learn to step into that peace with others because it's been extended to us. One of the ways we do it, of course, is through forgiveness and relationships. At least that's what we say we get to do, right? There's a story that I know of that's a little bit troubling for me in this regard. It focuses on a young man uh, from Rwanda, pastor, my profession. His name is Celestine Mesakura. Isn't that a great name? Celestine Mesakura. Grew up in Rwanda, pastored a church there, and in the late 1990s, moved to Dallas, uh, Texas, in order to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. While there, on December, uh, during the month of December, 1997, you may recall there was all kinds of warfare taking place in Rwanda, one tribe against another. On Sunday, December 28th of 1997, that warfare visited his village. Men in uniforms with guns and grenades and swords and clubs went to the village and they killed about 70 people. Some of the people were, who were killed were killed in their homes, some were killed on their farms, some were killed while they were in morning worship at church on a Sunday morning. Among those people who were killed was, were Celestine's father, his stepbrother, who was married and had two kids. The whole family was wiped out. A sister who had just recently been adopted from the refugee camps in Congo. Most of the people who were killed were either his neighbors, his friends, his family, or members of the church that he had pastored for four years before going to Dallas to go to seminary. His mother literally disappeared from the face of the earth. No one knew where she went. Was she killed? Was she buried amongst the, in a mass grave? They didn't know where she was. He was in Dallas. He gets a fax that night from Rwanda saying, your family and friends have been massacred. This is what he said about that day. That night in Dallas, the Lord confronted me with the hardest challenge of my life. You've been teaching others about repentance and forgiveness, and you do well in instructing others and leading others toward forgiveness. It's now your turn to forgive those who killed your relatives. It's your turn to forgive those who brutally murdered your loved ones, even before you know their names. It's up to you to make a choice, either forgive and let me take care of the rest, or fail to forgive and give up your freedom, joy, and peace. You can either choose to be a hypocrite who teaches what he does not practice, or you can be the wounded healer who gives the healing gift of forgiveness to the undeserving. What would you do in that moment? Hey, God, I want world peace. I want family peace. I want some inner peace. And I want vengeance on the people who killed my family. Well, that's only in Rwanda, right? Those, we don't worry about... We're, we're doing fine with people here, right? 
Well, let me see if I can bring this home to you for you a little bit. In 2003, in the life of our congregation, uh, some of you, many of you weren't here in those days. I understand that. We're significantly larger than we were in those days. But in the summer and fall of that year, we had a church fight in this congregation. It wasn't a church split. It was a church fight. We had many, many people get hurt. People were, in many ways, asked to choose sides. Some people left, some people stayed. There were errors on all sides. There was definitely pain on all sides. The last Sunday night of October 2003, in which we called a congregational meeting, which met in this room, was forever indelibly printed on my, in my mind and in my spirit as I stood on this stage. And it was a packed house, people standing around the walls, arguing back and forth at First Christian Church. Some of the reasons of why all that took place, I understand now. Some of the reasons, I must tell you, are still a mystery. Twelve years ago. Twelve years later, I can tell you it's not all resolved. All, for those of us who were all in the thick of it, we are perhaps a little better than we were, than we used to be. If we see each other across football fields or basketball courts, if we see each other in restaurants or perhaps at the mall, it's easier than it used to be to walk across those large, those rooms can sometimes seem really, really long and really big. And that 40 feet can seem like 400 yards. But we've come to the place where we can walk across that space and shake hands and ask about life and about kids and grandkids. And how you doing? Are you in church? So I'd say some of the awkwardness has disappeared. But it's not healed. I would have to say there's still more ground to cover before we can say with honesty and with integrity that it's healed. It's better, but it's not right yet. And in the meanwhile, with sadness, I have to say, I've desperately missed doing life with those people for the last 12 years. Romans 12 says this, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Whoa, how do I do that in the midst of those kinds of moments? I desperately want peace not only for the world, not only with God, but with others. And then I listen to stories like Celestine Mesakura. See, because here's how it worked out in his life. Uh, when he came back to the U.S. after the funerals and everything, he was approached by a publisher who wanted to document his story. And because he's African and they wanted to make certain that the English was in a way, put in a way that American readers would fully understand, he was assigned a co-writer. A fellow professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, a guy by the name of Jones. I've had these guys on the air on direct line, so I kind of know this story quite well. And the fellow Jones was to kind of ask the questions that were would be helpful to get into the book in language that could be understood. So they're chatting one day, and uh, as they're chatting, uh, Jones learns that Celestine's mother has been found. What do you mean she's been found? I thought she disappeared. Well, she did disappear for six months. She was gone with one of my sister's daughters, and we didn't know where they were. We thought they had been buried. But it turns out that she'd escaped into the forest, and she'd lived for six months 
feeding that child roots and branches of trees and bark to live on for six months. And they finally came out of the forest after the mayhem had stopped and they were malnourished and we had to find a place for her to live and to be taken care of. And so Joan says to Miss Sakura, so where does your mother live? And he, oh, he says, oh, he li she lives with one of the relatives of the people who killed my family. Whoa, what's with that? What's with that? Jones says this in response to all that. They're sitting, they're sitting across the table. I stopped and stared in wonder at the man across the table. I've taught classes, given lectures, written a book on forgiveness, yet he was one who lived it. And this gift of friendship with, some, with someone like Celestine is that you get to see with your own eyes that it's possible to embody forgiveness in, this worst, in the worst of this world's brokenness. The temptation is to think that he's an exception, a superhuman living outside the world of petty disagreements and, judges and, and grudges where most of us live. Celestine will not let us put him on a pedestal and distance ourselves from the gospel he has heard and experienced. Forgiveness, Celestine insists, is at the heart of the gospel. As people who have been forgiven, he told me, we have no choice. I don't know if I always want to hear that. But it is the truth of the gospel, right? Because where does that leave us today? See, I, I, I want to hold this candle. Come Christmas Eve, I, I want to hold it up with, for more than just a nostalgic moment. I, I want to I hold this up in integrity and honesty and say, all is calm, all is bright. Silent night. And so for that matter, for, for, with that in line, with that, with that in light, in light of, pardon me, let me try that again. In light of that, and for that matter, I'll get it out. What are we going to do about world peace? I'd invite you to do what I do, to be informed and to pray. I keep a newspaper, if you will, or a, a notebook in my hand and be aware of what's going on in the news, and I pray about that stuff. When it comes to my family, I invite you to do what I pray. I pray over the peace of my family. And when it comes to personal peace in relationships, I'm praying. I invite you to do the same because I want to do all that's possible to be at peace with all. Even in the awkwardness, even in the days while I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting on some matters and in some settings, I'm still waiting for the Prince of Peace to be born in my life again and again and again and over and over and over. And I'm willing to say over and over and over till it finally arrives. I'm working it out just like you. And that's why I, I pray this sort of prayer. May this Christ child soon to be born in our hearts again on December 25th. May that Christ child be the ruler of peace in our lives, the prince of peace in our lives, because I want more than a nostalgic moment during silent night. I want the reality of Jesus' peace in my life, in your life, and in this world. And would you pray with me, please? God, we're going to hold candles in a bunch of worship services on December 24th. And it's going to be really nice. And it's going to look real pretty. And it's going to have this wonderful moment of family and friends and this sense of, hey, it doesn't get any better than this. But God, I want it to get better than just a moment on Christmas Eve. Huh. I want it to get better for uh, the 26th of December. 
and the 26th of January and the 26th of February. I want to be better each and every month thereafter. And so, Lord, I, I pray for world peace. Lord, what's taking place with the West versus ISIS, man, and uh, there are leaders, God, who we pray that they would step up with information and insight from you. Lord, for the issues in our families, those of us who are given charge to be your, your light in those settings, help us to be used by you. And then, Lord, when it comes to the personal peace, as you have given us peace through the work of Jesus Christ in terms of our salvation and our eternal destiny, then, Lord, as far as it is possible with us, help us to be at peace with all people, even in the awkward things and the difficult ones. Spe speak into our lives, O oh Lord, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.